Yeah, thanks. Thanks. I'm actually going to, it's a little warm in here. I'm going to be bringing the hammer down on the husband. So I've got to, you got to click this down a couple settings here. No, <laughs> not really. But, but yes, actually, that is true. I'll bring the hammer down on myself, actually. At least the Lord's word, he, does, he has a way of doing that. But last week, we came to a section of scripture that many in our culture would just like to dismiss, would maybe like to throw it out, uh, skip it, maybe soften it. Uh, and, you know, Kevin handed me the baton right before he left, and I opened it up and said, wives, submit to your husbands. And I was like, oh, man, what a, what a passage I'm going to have to take on. But nonetheless, we've taken it on, and actually, it's, it's of, of incredible import. I know for me, my marriage, and hopefully for you guys as well in your marriages. Um, but we look at our culture and we say, what is it about this idea of submission that it's almost like a four-letter word? It's like just saying the word probably inside of you, as we walk in our culture, it just wells up this sort of initial adverse response. Uh, And I think that's because the evil one has blinded the eyes of the world around us, and we walk in that world, and at times it sort of rubs off on us. And we begin to, even within Christendom sometimes, have at times where we may also get a little bit, you know, sort of put off with the idea of submission. But As we saw last week, we're going to see it again today. When we gaze at God, when we look at his word, we will see that submission is an integral part of who God is. He does not view it in any way, shape, or form as a negative thing here in terms of who he is. In fact, I think he would contend that it's a glorious thing to have the opportunity to submit. Jesus said, as we saw last week, John 6, 38, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You could look at it this way. Jesus reveled in the opportunity to live out submission to his father. Just like his disciples that came after him that were filled with the spirit. They too reveled in the opportunity to submit to God's plan for them. And if you remember, that was even in times where it involved persecution. They would come away joyful that they were able to go through that like their Lord and Master had done. They were joyful to go through that and submit to his plan there. And so, you know, you look at this and you want to just say, Lord, make us like you. Make us bear your image to those around us, to take that divine sort of imprint, the image that our marriages should be reflecting to the world around us. Help us to take that image and take it out there to the world around us and our kids and our churches. uh, And let us have the, the realization that this idea of submission and authority and structures and submission and oneness, they are bound up in who God is. And that we should look at it as a glorious thing, just like Jesus said in 1030 of John. He said, I and the Father are one, just like husbands and wives are called one. Our marriages, let them be conformed to the image of God. And we know this is God's goal because he says says in Romans 8, 29, that he's predestined us to be conformed to the image of God of his son. So he wants us to be stamped with his imprint. But today we turn our, sort of turn a corner from this word submission 
to, a, to another concept that's presented in the exact same section. And yet this time, our culture would look at it and say, oh yeah, I like this idea. Let's talk about authority and headship. Let's get behind that. But unfortunately, our culture many times will abuse that, misuse authority, distort it or misappropriate it. And so this idea of authority roles and what they are and, and in, the, in the marriage with the husband, what that looks like, this would be something that the world may initially have a positive response to, but what we'll see is it actually involves quite a bit of letting go of yourself and turning to, to the Lord. Because the world would say, well, I want it my life. I want it my way. I want it by my rules, and I want to do it according to my authority. We're going to talk about an authority role here that God has given the husbands. And this, too, is an integral part of who God is, this idea of headship. All three, submission, headship and authority, and oneness, bound up in who God is. I put these charts up here. You know, I'm an engineer. I like doing block diagrams and charts. Sometimes they help us understand some things. I didn't diagram all of God, the, the triune God, at least two parts with God the Father and God the Son. The Son submitting to the will of the Father and the Son glorifying the Father, but the Father saying, this is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. You have the Son over in the, when it comes to the, this sort of circle here in the middle of the church, you have the Son giving himself up for the church. We'll talk about that today. And the church submitting to the will of the Son and where he's directing him as the head and the church being his very bride. And then we get to the context of what we're talking about with husbands and wives in the marriage circle over here. We've got the husband and the wife and his bride. And we're going to build this, this pillar here with this green arrow showing what is the responsibility of the husband's to their wives. Uh, and you know, you look at this, and, you, and I wanted to start by just asking a simple question. Have you ever been given a position of authority? Where you may, maybe it's in the church, maybe, it's in, maybe you have a position to lead something at a school, uh, or in a classroom scenario, um, maybe it's at work, you've been promoted to have, you have a few people under you, maybe even more than that. You've been given some level of authority. The reality is some people welcome that. Some people don't want, it, don't want it at all. Some take it and use it wisely and appropriately. And some, unfortunately, take it and use it for selfish and evil motives. For greed, power, money, and to lord it over others. So authority can be used and misused enjoyed, used, or, or some people just, I don't want to have anything to do with it. Well, as we've been looking at 1 Peter 3, we are gazing at God's very first social institution that he ever founded, and that was the institution of marriage. And we've been seeing in this that there is an authority structure. He has made a structure within it, and it reflects him. And as husbands, whether we like it or not, whether you want it or not, you've been given a position there as head or an authoritarian position in that marriage. And so I want to look today at what Peter has to say about what does that mean then? How is a husband to live that out? What is the responsibility of the husband? So let's stand here as we read 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. It's always good, I think. I always liked how Kevin had a stand because it shows 
reverence and honor to the word of God. It says in 1 Peter 3.1, In the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, a tranquil spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Lord, we come before you and we stand before your word in awe of its truth. And we ask that you would meet with us here today, that your spirit would impact us and cut deep into our hearts and into our lives where bone meets marrow. And may it be such that your spirit guides us into truth and understanding what you mean by these words. Lord, we know that you hold marriage in high honor uh, and you want us to as well. And you have a calling within it for us as husbands and wives to live out. May we see it today. May we live it out and may your word impact us. May you speak through me, through your word, and most powerfully within your spirit to, to guide us and convict us. We pray in Jesus' awesome name. Amen. You may be seated. So, diving in here to 1 Peter 3, when we look at the first verse, we looked at this last week. In the same way, you wives, so on and so forth, submit to your husbands. Verse 7 starts out with almost the exact same wording. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives. That's in the same way. And you have to say, well, what is this way? I asked it last week. We'll say it again just to make sure we're clear. What is he referring to here? Now, Kevin, as he taught us going through second, or sorry, 1 Peter chapter 2, he called it the Jesus way. You remember that when he got to the end? That was his title. And I think that's an excellent title because that is what Peter was laying before them, the example of Jesus. And I believe Peter is again now directing the husbands in the same way back to Christ as well. And you'd say, well, what way? Well, let's look. 1 Peter 2.21, for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. That's a, a way that he's saying to follow that. And you'd say, well, what way? What did he do? How did he live that out? Well, we saw in the next verses, it says, even though he was being reviled, he didn't revile in return. And then in verse 23, he says, Jesus kept entrusting himself, entrusting himself to him. That's God the Father who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross 
so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you were healed. He submitted to the Father. He acted for the betterment of those he loved most. And it resulted in those he loved most being set free, being healed. And that we're going to find today that same pattern that Jesus walked. He said, husbands, you too walk in that same way to look to the betterment of another, to submit to the will of the Father, to take up this position, and in the end, yield good fruit in your marriage such that you're building up the others so that they can, they can have a benefit from your laying yourself down, as we'll look at this in Ephesians here in a little bit. But that same pattern that Christ has lived out, he says, husbands, in the same way, you too walk that way. The next thing he says is he says, live with your wives in an understanding way or understanding manner. That's his first call to the husbands. Now, this Greek word for understanding is the Greek term gnosis, uh, which typically in the Bible is, is for a special knowledge, a, a fairly high and intimate knowledge, many times associated with really knowing God. For example, Philippians 3.8, Paul said, more than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing this gnosis and to have this knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's his ultimate pursuit. It's a, it's a deep uh, pursuit to really know Jesus. One etymology dictionary stated it this way. They said it's a, a deep judicial inquiry, an investigation of being known. That's what this gnosis word involves, a deep understanding. This isn't just a surface knowledge. In fact, it was the, if you know, it's the foundational word used by the Greek Gnostics. You may have heard that in there. And that was these, this group of folks that thought they were pursuing a deeper intellectual, higher understanding of spirituality and salvation. Now, we know they wandered into many errors, being simply directed by their own pursuits versus the spirits. But nonetheless, you get an idea of this gnosis idea. He says, you live with your wives truly knowing and understanding them. To live with someone in a knowing way implies, that, in that gnosis way, implies a deep, genuine understanding and knowledge of who they are. What makes them tick the way they tick? What does she like? What is she concerned about? What are her fears? What matters most to her? How does she perceive things? And how is she going to respond to certain things around her? What does she really need that I could work on supplying? This is the concept when he says you should know and understand your wives. And husbands here today, I would say, how well do we really know our wives? Do we actively listen to them? Do we take, make that careful inquiry to understand what they're going through, what they're feeling? Do we really want to know their temperaments in a matter or, and what really matters to them in a given situation? You know, I was reading through preparing for this and I came across a, a pastor that had, had written down a comment I thought was pretty interesting because I myself have not, you know, given a lot of premarital counseling. I remember going through it when, before Chris and I got married. But this pastor had an interesting quote. He said, in my premarital counseling as a pastor, I often gave the couple 
pads of paper. And I asked them to write down the three things each one thinks the other enjoys doing the most. Usually, the prospective bride made her list immediately. The man would sit and ponder. And usually, the woman was right, but the man was wrong. And I think there's a a truth in this, and I think that's why Peter starts out his address. You may think you know, but the reality is you were asked, like this guy said, he would ask people. And it would become clearer that the bride actually would, did know things about her future husband, her fiancé, whereas the husband, future husband, I actually had to stop and think. And what is it that really she really, and that's not the way it should be. And so Peter starts out and says, this is something that the husband may struggle with, but you've got to know her. It takes time. It takes action to know them well. And now, you know, when I was preparing for this also, I, there were so many examples that I could draw on from my own life as a, as a not-so-great husband. I mean, I was sitting here thinking, I, I was telling Kim before, I was like, I, you know, I like to look for illustration. I pray to the Lord, make, give me an illustration that, you could, that I could use. Well, this one, there was no shortage of illustrations here from my, from my life. So I said, well, I'm reading along and thinking this through, and I said, well, there's one that I remember pretty, pretty vividly, and it's one that I think I'll share with you, where, you know, this idea of genuinely, deeply knowing my life, or my wife, and then caring about her and acting accordingly, well, I'll tell you an example where I didn't do so hot at this. You know, the reality is, I love to fish. I know there are people here that love to fish. I know Miles likes to fish. I love to fish. Uh, and, it, you know, if I could be anywhere right now in the world it just for my own pleasure, and I could just pick anything, I'd probably be on a lake in East Texas or in a lake up upper Minnesota, maybe the Boundary Waters. You know, and I, I say, as I was sitting here writing this, I was like, I could almost stop and hear a loon echoing off the, the trees of that Minnesota lake. And I just, I, I love, I love being up there. There's something about interacting with the creation and seeing the creatures he's made. And, and, I've, and I have sort of wooed Chris a little bit to where she now likes the Minnesota summers as well. But nonetheless, I, I really love going to Texas, right? I, I've told you about that. I grew up going out, down there since I was a little baby. Um, now, I love Texas. I love fishing. My wife, on the other hand, she doesn't particularly love fishing. Uh, in fact, you know, you think about East Texas. She, they have a lot of red wasps. She hates red wasps. She's, she's, she's just stricken with fear. You, every once in a while, if you're around my house, you'll just hear this, ah! And you're like, there must have been a wasp or something around the house. Because she'll just scream out, there's a wasp. That's the nature of who she is. She doesn't like fire ants. I can't say that I care for them a lot either. But nonetheless, she doesn't like fire ants. And we would go down there, and we would fish, and she would have to put up with that. And in more than that, she's not a big fan of the 105 degree, maybe 110 plus, you know, East Texas summer heat. She's not a big fan of having to take a fish off of, off of a hook. She's not, it's just something she doesn't really care for. She'd rather do something else. She's not a big fan of dealing with monofilament fishing line. I don't know how many people love working with fishing line. She hates it. And you got to picture this. Here we are out in a little aluminum John boat, no major amenities, 
four or five people on the boat swinging rods, people getting hooked, getting hit. It's no wonder she doesn't like this stuff. But you see where the problem laid was that I liked to go down there and deep down, she really didn't. And it's the exact opposite of what Peter was saying. Instead of me caring about her world and what mattered most to her and understanding her, I cared more about what I, my, my world, what I wanted to do, right? And that's exactly opposite of what Peter's getting at in this verse. God calls us to intimately know and understand our wives and thus act accordingly. If they don't like red wasps, don't take them to places where there's red wasps everywhere. It's pretty simple. Don't do things that help them through. Show them this honor. We'll look at this in a second. But we should live this way, knowing them and understanding them. Now he goes on, he says, live with your wives in an understanding or knowing way as with someone weaker since she is a woman. Now we get to that statement and immediately, I'm sure there's like, it's like a bombshell erupted. In our culture, you read that verse, it's like, like, I don't want to cover this verse. That, what do you mean here? And in fact, you probably look at that like I would as you read it and say, man, That is a rude statement to make like that. In fact, we've been pretty much trained to never make a statement like this. I would, if I was at work, I'd be like, I could get reprimanded for making such a statement. And that's the way our world is around us. And you'd say, but here's the reality. Let's not call God's word rude when we know God is not rude. God is loving. He's kind. And he cares. Is he trying to make a rude statement? I don't think so. So you have to say, well, what is this statement about? And I think actually when you look at this, there are some profound aspects to realize in this. And so I want to look at this and better understand it. There's several points to look at. First off, this statement should not be misread to state that women are weaker in their spirituality or weaker in their intellectual prowess. We know that is not the case at all. You know, I read last week, and I'll read it again this week. 1 Corinthians 11, 11. In the Lord, neither is a woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. Spiritually, men and women have absolute unity and are equal before the Lord. So we have to get that idea. That's clearly not what he's trying to talk about when he's saying this idea of being weaker. Second, let's look at the terms. The Greek term used that's quoted, you know, in New NASB as someone weaker. Probably the better translation is a weaker vessel. And in fact, NASB put a little note and you can click on that and you can see it'll say literally weaker vessel. And I think that's critical because this Greek word for vessel, which is translated someone over in the NASB, is a vessel, an implement, or an apparatus, sort of pointing to the physical thing, which I think gives us some clarity of what he's talking about, more in the physical realm. It's possible he's also talking about the emotional aspect or emotional strength as well, but if we go with this physical aspect, you'd say, well, let's look at it a little further. Is this a absolute 100% true every, every time of the matter? Or is this a general statement about men and women? I take this to be a general statement pointing to the physical realities. 
Uh, and I take it as general, meaning it's not always the case that every man is stronger than every woman. All I've got to do is stand before you. <laughs> A whopping 135 pounds? I, could, I don't have any clue what I could bench nowadays, but it's probably not. You see the size of my forearm? I mean, I don't think I could really lift a whole lot anymore, nor could I ever. I was more of a distance runner, Lord. That's the way the Lord made me, okay? But here's the thing. There are women in this world that are physically stronger than me. I guarantee it. There are probably women right here that I don't want to arm wrestle after after this message because you could probably beat me in a battle of strength. But that said, that said, Is it not true that men are generally stronger than women? The way that God has engineered the chemistry of the bodies is such that in general, men are stronger than women. We don't have to look too far at the Olympic world record books of, say, weightlifting or some strength-based sport to see that, oh yeah, there is a difference there. And could not the Lord just be simply calling that, that, that to reality, which I think he is. But there's a bigger part of this, too. And this is where it gets, this is why, we, why it blows a bomb up with us, is that we equate strength with value. Our culture has been almost trained, is that strength is value. Athleticism, top dollar. I'll pay a guy a half a billion dollars to throw a football. We'll talk about that in a second. That shows you what the culture values. But in reality, strength is not a measure of value in this passage. It's not implying less value. In fact, I think we're going to find it's the exact opposite. Does stronger imply better? Does stronger imply superior? The reality is it does not. And I'll give you three examples. Maybe one of these will stick with you and you'll remember it. Maybe not. Who knows? I'll throw them out here. I have two engines at my house. If you were to come over, I could show you two pretty neat combustion engines. One is a Nissan L24 inline six-cylinder. Revs to about 6,000 RPM, give or take. Produces about 180 horsepower. Back in the day, that was a big deal. Today, that's a little wimpy. But it weighs 400 pounds. Cast iron block, pretty big beast, pretty big behemoth. The United States, we've made some bigger ones over here, but the Japanese, that was big to them. Anyway, I have a second engine I could show you, which is a PRD Fireball 125 Australian-made go-kart engine. That's a lot to say, but it's a really cool little engine. I could hold it right here in my hands. It revs to 15,500 RPM as its red line. Single-cylinder two-stroke produces 28 horsepower, weighs a whopping 25 pounds. So we're dealing with something that is significantly 16 times lighter than the big Nissan L24, but nowhere near as strong as that big L24, right? Now, if you were talking about value, if I was to be, if I had a go, if I had a guy on the stage and I put these two engines before him and he was a guy wanting to do go-kart racing, which engine would be more valuable to that individual? I think I know which one he would choose. And I think I know what he would probably say to the other one. He'd say, I don't even want that other one. It's too big. It's better, nothing good for me other than maybe being a big boat anchor. And I, carrying that big old thing around, I don't want to have anything to do with it. But give me that little PRD-125. I'll pay top dollar for that Australian-made little engine. So the value here is in the eye of the beholder, 
not just the fact that one was big and strong. You could look at the same thing with pottery. And I think this is maybe a better example because the term vessel in the scriptures is used many times for this kind of thing. And God being the potter, we being the clay. And this type of pottery, my, my son made this. My, my two older boys have gotten into pottery. And what they've found is they've learned and they've been taught that four years worth of, of it at the, the high school is that it actually takes a lot more skill and delicacy to be able to make something like this that's thinner, has that, gives that nice ring, lightweight, deal, make sure the clay behaves properly. So it takes a lot of care to make something like that. Versus if I was to make, say, a great big old pot that is thick, it's got all kinds of clay in it. It's just used for general purpose, moving water in between the well and home every day. Now the big thick one is nice and heavy, maybe stronger, but which one is of more value? Say if you were to sit down at a Thanksgiving meal and get out your finest china that you have, this right here is actually of higher value than the big, the big strong pot. Now my third example is one that maybe is a bit more humorous, as if these haven't already been a little bit humorous, but this one is if I was to stand before you, and then I had another individual stand on the other side of the stage, and we were to compare value of the two individuals, let's put me here, and let's say we have Patrick Mahomes standing right over here on the other side of the stage. Now, if Brett Veach, the GM of the Chiefs, comes and stands right here, and I'd say, Brett, what do you think? Well, let's value these two individuals out. You know, here I am, 135 pounds, maybe throw the ball, I don't know, what do you think, Derek, 25, 30 yards? I don't, I don't know, I don't know. I say, you know, I've got my degree in electrical engineering. I, I can, you know, I may die at my first hit when I get sacked once, but nonetheless, look, what do you, what, what's your value? Then he looks over here and he sees Patrick Mahomes. You know Patrick Mahomes. Well, he's going to look at him and see, here's a guy strong capable, able to throw that ball like no one else. And guess what he's going to do? He's going to show that value by opening up his checkbook. And he's going to write a whopping half a billion dollar check, essentially, to Patrick Mahomes. And he'll look at me and say, I, I will pass on you. We'll pass on you. You're of no value to the team right now, which I probably wouldn't be of any value to the chief. But, but, but if we had my boss from Dolby come down and, and and Trevor was here, and I said, Trevor, what do you think? You know, 135, throw a football maybe 25 yards. That guy, he, yeah, I'll give you that. He's got me beat over there. But I've been trained in electronics. Come on, you got, you got, he's got to open up some, his wallet a little bit here. Well, to Trevor, he's going to look at it and say, well, what we're trying to do at Dolby is design electronics. We don't need a guy throwing a football. Maybe we could do a publicity stunt with Patrick Mahomes and get on the TV. But what we need are more people like Joel to help design things. He'll open his wallet. He'll not write me anywhere close to the, <laughs> the check, check of Patrick Mahomes, but you get the point. That the reality is value is in the eye of the beholder. Strong or less strong does not imply value. In fact, I believe there's an argument to be made in this passage that Peter is wanting the husbands to see the value of his wife as a finer vessel, a vessel that while you might look upon it as weak at some angles, is actually extremely valuable when considered correctly. 
similar to the fine and delicate china that we get out on our most important days of the year. No one will use fine china to change the oil in their car. It's far too valuable. Husbands should fight for and defend their wives, wanting to protect them, it's something of, looking at them as something of tremendous and precious value. Now, I know that our culture wants to rewrite the book on this reality. They want to rewrite the book on this type of thinking. They want to make everything look absolutely equal. No more men, no more women, no more husbands, no more wives. We all have the same role. We all have the same purpose. There is no distinction. Everyone's the exact same. Well, that isn't what God's word tells us. And when we walk that way, we walk into error and we walk into a trap and we lead right in to the evil one's road to death. Whereas we find life and fruit when we walk according to the Lord's ways. The question is, do we as husbands live with this viewpoint? Loving and cherishing our wives as someone and something worth dying for? Or do we lord it over them? Use our position of authority in the home to maybe force them or belittle them or coerce them or just, we, we have the right to just ignore them altogether. That's wrong. That's not right. And Peter's confronting them. And, you know, and you go over and you look a little deeper at this view. You go over to Ephesians 5. It says in 5.22 of Ephesians, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. That's the church. But as the church is subject to Christ so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all of her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. You got to get the picture in passages like this because it's of utmost value to our marriages. Christ loved the church. He loved the church with that Greek agapeo type of love. And what does that love look like? It looks like action. Considering what's better for the other party and acting in it. Probably the archetype verse where you see this, this agapeo demonstrated is the famous John 3.16. For God the Father so loved, so they had moved so much by this agapeo love. He loved this world so much that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. It, it's actionable. God looks down, he loves the world, and he, with this agape love, and acts. In Ephesians 5, it says, Christ loves the church so dearly with this agape love that he acted by giving himself up for her. The writer over in Philippians 2, and Paul says, 2-7, that the picture here is Jesus emptying himself, taking the form of a slave or a servant, Willing to go and die, not just any death, but death on a cross for you and I, right here. 
because he loved us with that level of love. And then you'd say, well, what were his goals? What does he want to see in his bride as a result of his actions? He wants to see her set apart, it says in verse 26, sanctified. He wants to see her glorified in verse 27. He wants to see her perfected and reach a stature of maturity at the end of verse, in verse 27. And then he turns around and he says, and that's the call for the husbands also. That should be the attitude of the husbands also. That do you care about her, value her, desire to see her set apart, to see her glorified? Like 1 Corinthians eleven seven 7 says, the woman is the glory of man. Do you want to see her have that glory? Christ wanted to see it in his bride. I hope that we as husbands would want to see that in our brides. And how much would you give to accomplish that for her? Would you be willing to give up everything? Would you be willing to empty yourself of everything and humble yourself to give up your, li- your very life potentially for her? Maybe give up a fishing trip to East Texas? You know, I've had to learn that maybe the hard way, but <laughs> I have learned that. It's best not to go down. I'll go where my wife wants to go. But anyway, are you willing to give up your time, your treasure, your talent for her? And you stop and you think about that, what a difference that would make when we live that out in our marriage as husbands. What an impact that would have on our wives if we lived that way more often. Our children would witness and see God's very imprint and they would see us like Christ dying and giving up ourselves for our wives. And those around us would say they have a a unique marriage. It's not just like all the marriages of the world. There's a picture there in it and and I can see something the world would say that's different in their marriage. Peter goes on and says, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Now, Peter calls upon the husbands to show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Now, we talked a little bit earlier about assigning value with my little illustrations and how ultimately value is determined by the eye of the beholder. We looked at that. The interesting thing here is that the Greek word he draws upon when he says show her or apportion to her or give to her this honor, that Greek word in its basic definition is a valuing, a price, a valuing by which the price is determined. So when you look at her and you give her, you should give her and apportion to her great value, as he's saying in this idea of honor. And they should then Peter says husbands should act that way to their wives. And he says so as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Now that, this gets into a question. There's some discussion on exactly what Peter's referring to with the fellow heir of the grace of life. Is he talking about salvation? Or is he pointing to the blessing and the grace given to us of being able to live life on this earth? In other words, you could look at it this way. Is he saying, husbands, show her honor, this great value, as she is a fellow heir of salvation as a believer? Or is he saying, show her honor and great value as she too is a fellow heir or fellow partaker of the favor or blessing of life on this earth? 
The wording actually in the Greek sort of leans towards the latter. But the reality is I think both are true in this case, or both can be true. In the spiritual sense, she has all the opportunity to believe in Christ as you would. And if so, if she really has believed, she is truly an inheritor of God's saving grace along with her hopefully believing husband that he is addressing here in this verse. But also in the physical sense, regardless of whether she, she is a believer or not, she too is an inheritor, a partaker of God's good gift of life, his gracious gift of life here on this earth. You may stop and say, well, why does this matter? Well, it actually has a big, this is a big deal. Because I believe there's no out for the husband here. I don't think this is about worthiness of the wife, whether she deserves this honor or not. In fact, all of these sections, if you've noticed, Peter, he's repeatedly made the case that this isn't about worthiness when you submit to maybe your master as the servant, even the harsh master. You bear with it. Even then he talks to the wives. Even what about disobedient husband? Do we have a way out now? The wife said, no. You continue to walk in, in the way God designed. What about the government? They may make some, some errant moves. Nero wasn't the greatest guy. Do you continue to submit and honor? Yes, you do, it says. He said in these passages. So, and I think it's true too here. Uh, the, the reality is this is not a matter of worthiness. If she is not a believer, the husband is still called to value her as a co-partaker. That's what that word is. That fellow heir, a co-partaker of God's gracious gift of life. Proverbs 5.18 says, Let your fountain, Solomon, speaking to his son, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Ecclesiastes 9.9, enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you under the sun, which Solomon says is a reward to live with your wife and live out life on this earth, to enjoy it together. Now, sometimes it's the most simple things, though, where we fail to do this. And, you, you know, I, I have a, as I was preparing for this, you know, sometimes the Lord has a has a good way of convicting you as you study his word. And you stand up and you, and you teach this and you say, the reality is I struggle with this even myself, even in the simplest thing. Do I value her in the simple things in life, just living out the, great, the God's grace on this earth that we can live a life, breathe and move and have our being? I, I put up here on the screen a text message thread that happened just a whopping one and a half weeks ago. So you see, I can give you examples of all the time when I fail at these very things. So don't always look at me and say, well, Joel's got it all figured out. Well, I mean, this text message a few weeks, about a week and a half ago, where as I told you the least second service last week, we're building a little cabin out on some land we've had for years. We're having to make some decisions on things to like faucets and sinks and flooring and all these sorts of things. And I happened to be one day looking at some faucets because the builder's like, you got to get, get some faucets picked out. So, and we had gone back and forth. We'd gone to the store and picked out one that, that Chris liked and I was on the edge. I wasn't sure about it. Then I went and found this link. You can see at the top, I'll just, it starts out talking about this Fister, you know, you know, faucet, you know, and I have sent a link here to Lowe's 
And I, and I was basically saying, take a look at this one, even though we had already bought the one she liked. Just remember, just remember that. So <laughs> you, gotta, you gotta remember that. We've already bought the sink she likes, and yet I'm sending a link here. Why don't you check this one out? Uh, she said, okay, looks good. And I said, do you like those or want to stay, get this, do you want to stay with the Tuscany model from Menards, that, i.e. the one that we already bought? And she said, I think you have made your choice. Did you get that? <laughs> this is good. And then I said, but I'd like to know your choice too. And then you got to get the last one. Won't matter. And I was sitting there when I got that at work. And it just, I just, it stopped everything I was doing. Because, you know, you look at this and you say, Joel, you can get up, you can teach it, you can read it, you can study it. Are you valuing her in the little thing, like just going out and picking out a faucet, just living life together? Or are you ignoring what she wanted? Were you trying to take what she was after and just try to one-up to get your way in this? I had to stop immediately, pick up my phone. The minute You noticed that was the end of the text thread. Because what happened next was the phone came out. I, I dialed Chris, and I immediately talked to her. And I said, you know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry because I realized that I, I had blown it here. You know, I, I was trying to steer her away from something she wanted, all because I was after what I wanted on something as trivial as a bathroom sink faucet. And yet it, it became this issue. And so, you know, it stands out to me that we, it's the little things in life as we live out life together, now, you go back to this passage and say, now, if she is a believer in Jesus Christ, you would say, praise the Lord. And we also need to recognize that she is also an inheritor of the same spiritual blessings that a believing husband enjoys as well. We know from Galatians 3, 27, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Give her honor as a fellow heir of Christ if she is a believer. Don't act as if you've arrived at some higher level of standing before God than she has. That's just flat out not true. She has the same standing before God as you do if she's a believer. So this statement here, when he talks about giving her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, is a profound one, one that we should walk into and, and live out as husbands. Now, Peter then drops a very, very powerful closing statement. He says, so that your prayers will not be hindered. And if you've ever read this, you get to that statement, and if you're like me, it's like, doot, doot. It's like the red flags. The light bulbs are going on. There's a problem here. You're saying that w there's my actions with my wife directly impact God's willingness to listen and hear my prayers, my prayer life. And I'd say that I believe that is what Peter is trying to get at. And we should have the warning lights going off. He said, this is a big deal is what Peter's saying. This impacts your walk with the Lord, how you treat your wife. 
You treat her like you try to get out from everything she wants to do. You try to do it all your way. You ignore her thoughts. You ignore her feelings. It will impact your, your prayers before me, the Lord says. In fact, here this word, this Greek word, this hindered word is a powerful word to mean to cut into, to cut into those prayers, to impede or to detain. It's also translated in Romans 15, 22, prevented when Paul was wanting to go to Rome. And then I threw this verse in just so you can get a sense of it. 1 Thessalonians 2.18, For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once. And yet Satan hindered us. Someone stopped us from being able to get to Thessalonica. I wanted to come to you multiple times, but there was a powerful hindrance that kept me from getting, getting to you. And this is a real-life impediment, it says to the husband's prayers, Peter says. Thus you see a principle that Peter wants the husbands to understand. If we don't call or we don't heed his call to live with our wives in a knowing and understanding way, live with our wives valuing them, cherishing them, defending them, loving them, laying down our lives for them, honoring them as participants in God's gracious gift of life, then our communication and our communion with God the Father will be hindered, he says. Our prayers are impacted by the way we walk and live our lives and the motives of our hearts. Look at James 4.3. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. There's a hindrance but what you're asking. You're not going to receive it because your motives are wrong, James says. You can look at Samuel. You remember, I'm not going to take the time to build the, build the backdrop here, but we go back to 1 Samuel 28. You find Saul, the first king of Israel, struggling. What should I do? The Philistines have gathered. It's time for a huge battle. I need to seek the Lord. And it says, when Saul inquired of the Lord, 28.6, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. You get this? He tried every normal mechanism to ask God, to pray to God, to get his answer. God did not answer. We don't have time to build the whole case as to why God didn't answer, but if we just fast forward to 1 Chronicles 10, it gives us a succinct answer because he did not walk and fear the Lord. He had turned away from the Lord's words. He had sinned and walked away, and it says in 1 Chronicles, he was seeking mediums. He was seeking spiritists. He was not truly seeking with all of his heart and mind and soul the will of his God. And so the Lord says, I'm not going to answer Saul. Ezekiel 20 is another powerful passage. The elders of Israel come to the prophet Ezekiel and they say, we want to ask of the Lord. We want to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord says, time out. Ezekiel, son of man, Tell them I'm not going to answer them, but make them know the abominations of their fathers. And then it goes on and on and on, and you get 31 verses. And we get to the 31st. When you, this is God speaking to the elders of Israel, when you offer your gifts, when you cause your sons to pass through the fire, divination, you are defiling yourselves. 
with all your idols to this day. And shall I be inquired of by you, O house of Israel? As I live, declares the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. Your hearts are far from me. You're walking in sin. You're ignoring what I've told you. You're walking in divination, making your sons walk through fire. And then you're going to turn around and pray to me and ask me for something? No, I won't listen to to that request. And probably the most germane text for this passage in, in 1 Peter is from the book of Malachi, the last of the prophets in the Old Testament. Small book, but very powerful. One that it's awesome to read because God will make a statement then he'll, then he'll give a question, but the people will say this. Then he'll give an answer, say, but I say this. So he always has given the logic of what the, how the people view it and how God views it. And he gets to this in 2.13. He says, there is another thing that you do, speaking to the Israelites. You cover the altar of Yahweh with tears and with weeping and with groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. So pause real quick. He's saying that you're, you're, you're all in turmoil because the Lord is not receiving and responding to your sacrifices and the things you're trying to put before him. And so then God gives the answer. He says, for you say, for what reason is this happening? Because Yahweh has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. If you think as husbands that you can, you know, take advantage of your wife and deal treacherously with her and not value her or abuse your authority and then turn around when you get to some problem at work and you turn out, oh Lord, help me with this problem I'm facing. And lo and behold, he doesn't seem to be responding a whole lot to your requests. You need to go back to your wife and say, How, what's my walk with my wife like? Am I treating her the right way? Am I, am I walking in a way that gives her value and glory and honor? Am I willing to, to reflect God's good nature to those around me in the way I handle her? Now, we could end on that and say, well, wow, our prayers could be hindered. We could have people right here today. And I'm telling you, I've sensed it, as you could tell in that text thread. I've sensed it this very month where I'm like, Lord, there's something that seems to be a little bit awry. And, and you have to be sensitive to that with the Lord. And you go, what am, I, what, what am I missing? There's good news for a man that recognizes this and turns from it because while your prayers might be hindered now, there's a way to break through, I believe, to break through that, that hindrance because the Bible says that if we go before the Lord with a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise Psalm 51, 17. And 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you are a husband out there that has mistreated or not walked in a way worthy of this calling as a husband, I get it. I totally get it. Turn from that. Confess it before the Lord. Get on your knees before the Lord and recognize, I need to do a better job in this area. 
Help me to have the heart that you would want me to have towards my wife. And I believe God will listen to that prayer of repentance and confession when you approach him in that manner. So my friends, as we looked at this, as we step back and we look at this whole section, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7, I hope you've seen a glimpse, just a glimpse of what a high calling that we have in our marriages, both husbands and wives. If we are to influence the world around us, we should be reflecting God's character, reflecting his imprint, his design, and his grace. And then we as husbands and wives must submit to this calling and live that way. The problems that we see outside our doors in the nation around us stem from a nation that has rejected God's designs. They've rejected God's structures. They've chosen a lie with the evil one's ways of it's my way. And in so doing, they've walked away from the truth that brings life and brings goodness and brings offspring and brings fruitfulness to the world around us. We desperately need his help. Our nation lacks a strong foundation, and it's a foundation that must be laid and forged within the marriages and homes that make up the bedrock of this great land. And we need God-fearing wives. We need God-fearing husbands to live out the calling that we've been reading about. And may we say at the end of the day, thy will be done and not my will be done. And may our marriages here at CCC be a divine reflection of our Lord Jesus and his bride and the church and the union therein. May we realize that this is an awesome reality. That when we turn our necks and backs against that, we've turned our backs against God's very nature and the design of what he wants for us.